Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Twelve. Blight, mildew, and smut. Mary was puzzled and distressed. Perhaps her ears had played her false. Perhaps what he had really said was Squire Binion and Shanks, or Childs Blunden and Earp, or even Abercrombie, Drinkwater, and Rabindranath Tagore. Perhaps. But then her ears never did play her false. Blight, mildew, and smut. The impression was distinct and ineffaceable. Blight, mildew. She was forced to the conclusion, reluctantly, that Dennis had indeed pronounced those improbable words. He had deliberately repelled her attempts to open a serious discussion. That was horrible. A man who would not talk seriously to a woman just because she was a woman? Oh, impossible. Egeria or nothing. Perhaps... Gombold would be more satisfactory. True, his meridional heredity was a little disquieting, but at least he was a serious worker, and it was with his work that she should associate herself. And Dennis, after all, what was Dennis? A dilettante, an amateur. Gombold had annexed for his painting-room a little disused granary that stood by itself in a green close beyond the farmyard. It was a square brick building with a peach roof and little windows set high up in each of its walls. A ladder of four rungs led up to the door, for the granary was perched above the ground and out of the reach of the rats on four massive toadstools of grey stone. Within there lingered a faint smell of dust and cobwebs, and the narrow shaft of sunlight that came slanting in at every hour of the day through one of the little windows was always alive with silvery motes. Here Gombold worked, with a kind of concentrated ferocity, during six or seven hours of each day. He was pursuing something new, something terrific, if only he could catch it. During the last eight years, nearly half of which had been spent in the process of winning the war, he had worked his way industriously through Cubism. Now he had come out on the other side. He had begun by painting a formalised nature. Then, little by little, he had risen from nature into the world of pure form, till, in the end, he was painting nothing but his own thoughts, externalised in the abstract geometrical forms of the mind's devising. He found the process arduous and exhilarating. And then, quite suddenly, he grew dissatisfied. He felt himself cramped and confined within intolerably narrow limitations. He was humiliated to find how few and crude and uninteresting were the forms he could invent. The inventions of nature were without number, inconceivably subtle and elaborate. He had done with cubism. He was out on the other side. But the cubist discipline preserved him from falling into excesses of nature worship. He took from nature its rich, subtle, elaborate forms, but his aim was always to work them into a whole that should have the thrilling simplicity and formality of an idea, to combine prodigious realism with prodigious simplification. Memories of Caravaggio's portentous achievements haunted him. Forms of breathing, living reality emerged from darkness, built themselves up into compositions as luminously simple and single as a mathematical idea. He thought of the call of Matthew, of Peter crucified, of the lute-players, of Magdalene. He had the secret, that astonishing ruffian. He had the secret. And now Gombold was after it, in hot pursuit— Yes, it would be something terrific, if only he could catch it. 
For a long time an idea had been stirring and spreading yeastily in his mind. He had made a portfolio full of studies, he had drawn a cartoon, and now the idea was taking shape on canvas. A man fallen from a horse. The huge animal, a gaunt white cart-horse, filled the upper half of the picture with its great body. Its head, lowered towards the ground, was in shadow. The immense bony body was what arrested the eye, the body and the legs which came down on either side of the picture like the pillars of an arch. On the ground, between the legs of the towering beast, lay the foreshortened figure of a man, the head in the extreme foreground, the arms flung wide to right and left. A white, relentless light poured down from a point in the right foreground. The beast, the fallen man, were sharply illuminated. Round them, beyond and behind them, was the night. They were alone in the darkness, a universe in themselves. The horse's body filled the upper part of the picture. The legs, the great hoofs, frozen to stillness in the midst of their trampling, limited it on either side. And beneath lay the man, his foreshortened face at the focal point in the centre, his arms outstretched towards the sides of the picture. Under the arch of the horse's belly, between his legs, the eye looked through into an intense darkness. Below, the space was closed in by the figure of the prostrate man, a central gulf of darkness surrounded by luminous forms. The picture was more than half finished. Gumbold had been at work all morning on the figure of the man, and now he was taking a rest, the time to smoke a cigarette. Tilting back his chair till it touched the wall, he looked thoughtfully at his canvas. He was pleased, and at the same time he was desolated. In itself the thing was good, he knew it, but that something he was after, that something that would be so terrific if only he could catch it. Had he caught it, would he ever catch it? Three little taps, rat-tat-tat. Surprised, Gumbold turned his eyes towards the door. Nobody ever disturbed him while he was at work. It was one of the unwritten laws. "'Come in,' he called. The door, which was ajar, swung open, revealing, from the waist upwards, the form of Mary. She had only dared to mount halfway up the ladder. If he didn't want her, retreat would be easier and more dignified than if she climbed to the top. "'May I come in?' she asked. "'Certainly.' She skipped up the remaining two rungs and was over the threshold in an instant. "'A letter came for you by second post,' she said. "'I thought it might be important, so I brought it out to you.' Her eyes, her childish face, were luminously candid as she handed him the letter. There had never been a flimsier pretext. Gombold looked at the envelope and put it in his pocket unopened. "'Luckily,' he said, "'it isn't at all important. Thanks very much, all the same.' There was a silence. Mary felt a little uncomfortable. "'May I have a look at what you're painting?' she had the courage to say at last. Gombold had only half smoked his cigarette. In any case, he wouldn't begin work again until he had finished. He would give her the five minutes that separated him from the bitter end. This is the best place to see it from, he said. Mary looked at the picture for some time without saying anything. Indeed, she didn't know what to say. She was taken aback. She was at a loss. She had expected a cubist masterpiece, and here was a picture of a man and a horse, not only recognisable as such, but even aggressively in drawing. Trompe there was no other word to describe the delineation of that foreshortened figure under the trampling feet of the horse. What was she to think? What was she to say? Her orientations were gone. One could admire representationism in the old masters, obviously, but in a modern— 
At eighteen she might have done so, but now, after five years of schooling among the best judges, her instinctive reaction to a contemporary piece of representation was contempt, an outburst of laughing disparagement. What could Gombold be up to? She had felt so safe in admiring his work before, but now she didn't know what to think. It was very difficult. Very difficult. "'There's rather a lot of chiaroscuro, isn't there?' she ventured at last, and inwardly congratulated herself on having found a critical formula so gentle and at the same time so penetrating. "'There is,' Gumbold agreed. Mary was pleased. He accepted her criticism. It was a serious discussion. She put her head on one side and screwed up her eyes. "'I think it's awfully fine,' she said, "'but of course it's a little too, too trompe-l'oeil for my taste.' She looked at Gombold, who made no response, but continued to smoke, gazing meditatively all the time at his picture. Mary went on gaspingly. When I was in Paris this spring, I saw a lot of Chaplinsky. I admire his work so tremendously. Of course, it's frightfully abstract now, frightfully abstract and frightfully intellectual. He just throws a few oblongs onto his canvas, quite flat, you know, and painted in pure primary colours. But his design is wonderful. He's getting more and more abstract every day. He'd given up the third dimension when I was there, and was just thinking of giving up the second. Soon, he says, there'll be just a blank canvas. That's the logical conclusion. Complete abstraction. Painting's finished. He's finishing it. When he's reached pure abstraction, he's going to take up architecture. He says it's more intellectual than painting. Do you agree? she asked, with a final gasp. Gombold dropped his cigarette end and trod on it. Schuplitsky's finished painting, he said. I've finished my cigarette, but I'm going on painting. And, advancing towards her, he put his arm round her shoulders and turned her round away from the picture. Mary looked at him, her hair swung back a soundless bell of gold. Her eyes were serene. She smiled. So the moment had come. His arm was round her. He moved slowly, almost imperceptibly, and she moved with him. It was a peripatetic embrace. "'Do you agree with him?' she repeated. The moment might have come, but she would not cease to be intellectual, serious. "'I don't know. I shall have to think about it.' Gombold loosened his embrace. His hand dropped from her shoulder. "'Be careful going down the ladder,' he added solicitously. Mary looked round, startled. They were in front of the open door. She remained standing there for a moment in bewilderment. The hand that had rested on her shoulders made itself felt lowered down her back. It administered three or four kindly little smacks. Replying automatically to its stimulus, she moved forward. "'Be careful going down the ladder,' said Gombold once more. She was careful. The door closed behind her, and she was alone in the little green close. She walked slowly back through the farmyard. She was pensive. End of chapter